would you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter... Where am I? John, chapter 11.55. And we will read down to verse 12... Sorry, chapter 12... Verse 11. Guys on the top, I appreciate all you're doing, but is there any way we can turn off that spotlight? I know it might affect the live stream, but yes. Oh, thank you. John eleven fifty five. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, and we just come before you, we ask that you would incline our hearts to listen to your word and to obey your word. Please teach us what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, there is a parable about a great wedding feast to which many of guests were invited to. Some of you are familiar with that parable because that parable is in other, the other Gospels as well, but the, Matthew's telling of that parable is a little different, and it goes like this. A king put on this great feast to celebrate the wedding of his son, and so the servants are putting everything together, the, everything is, is in order, and so the king sends out the servants to go into the cities to, to notify the invited guests to come. It's been prepared. Come and celebrate the, 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 uh, the wedding of the king's son, and the, the invited, the guests, well, they turned away the servants. They ignored the servants, and some even took the servants and harassed them and even killed them. 
So then the king sends out men to lay waste to the cities of these invited guests. But then there was a problem. Well, now we don't have anybody to attend this wedding celebration. We don't have any guests. So then the king commands the servants to go out into the streets, into the roads, and invite whoever will come. So the servants do that, and they come, and they fill the hall with many guests. And so the king comes into the hall, and he's drawn to this one individual. Now, if you're drawing the attention of somebody who's a king, right, you might think that it's not a very good, a very good thing. Right? You might feel really awkward and uncomfortable because why is this person who doesn't know me be attracted to me in this way? But the king is drawn to this particular person. He goes to this man and he says, Sir, how did you get in here without the proper attire? So in other words, this man wasn't dressed like he was ready to celebrate the, feet, uh, the wedding of his son. And what does the man say? He doesn't say anything. It says that the, he's speechless. So his silence, by his silence, he's communicating that he's kind of, he's guilty, he's condemned. And so the king has him bound and cast out. Now, that parable is telling us much more than how important it is to be wearing the right attire for the right occasion. But it does tell us something about what matters most. And I think it's in relation to our passage this morning. It tells us right in the passage that there's, the Passover was at hand and people were preparing for it. And something that the Lord cares about much more than proper attire is the posture of your heart. That's what he cares most about. Not that it's not important to wear the right attire for the right occasion, right? You're not going to go into a wedding wearing sandals and shorts and a Hawaiian t-shirt. But even as you are in a wedding celebration and your attire might show that you are ready to celebrate, doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is in the right place. Maybe you don't like the groom. Maybe you're not happy with the occasion, even though you're dressed like you're ready. And so what I want to point us to this morning is just this incredible example that we see in the passage that really displays to us a wonderful posture of the heart that I personally want for my own life, and I hope that you will want for your own heart as well. But before we get to that, let's see this, this preparation, these preparations for the Passover. Right, so the, it, it tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So the Passover was at hand, and this was a time to remember and commemorate and to celebrate God's enduring faithfulness in the past, when God uh, released all these plagues upon Egypt to release his people from captivity and slavery, and up until the 10th plague, which was the, the, the taking of life of the firstborn child in every home, and then when God sent his angel upon the land of Egypt to take that life, well, the angel passed over the houses of Israel because they had on the doorpost painted in blood uh, the blood of, the, of a sacrifice, of a lamb, as they were commanded to do. And so whenever the angel of the Lord came through the land and saw that blood painted on the doorpost, well, then he passed over and moved on to the next house. And so this, that's what they were celebrating. Now, it tells us there was six days away from the Passover, which tells us that Jesus is less than a week away from his crucifixion. 
So John chapter 11 is an important chapter, not just because it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? An incredible miracle, a miracle that kind of it's set apart from the other miracles at the hands of Jesus, but also because it marks an important transition in the gospel of John, because it is that particular miracle that sort of sets in motion the plans to bring Jesus to death. It's when the Pharisees begin to plot on how to murder Jesus. And so, from every, so then from chapter 11 to about chapter 18, is this is Jesus sort of setting his house in order. It's getting his disciples prepared for Jesus' departure and crucifixion. Now the crowds, it tells us that they were preparing for the Passover. So during the Passover, these pilgrims, these, uh, these Jewish pilgrims from all over would travel into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would swell up with so many people coming from all over to celebrate the Passover. And they would come days in advance to be purified in preparation to take this, this feast. And so, say for example, a, someone touched a, a, a carcass or, the corpse, or, or a corpse, well then that person was considered unclean, so then they were required to come early and perform these particular rituals through water in order, to consider, in order that they may be considered clean and purified so that they can take the Passover meal. As important as that is, which was important because this is, what some, this is something that God commanded of his people, but most important of all, of course, is the posture of the heart. That's what God cares about most. Now, you might remember what happened in John chapter 2 when it was a Passover again, and this was two Passovers ago, so two years ago, the gospel of John. Jesus enters the temple. It was days away from the Passover, and what does he find? He finds people selling oxen and sheep and animals and money changers, right? So he drives them all out because he's angry because this is the house of worship. This is the God. This is God's house. And so this was intended to be a place where people come and prepare their hearts to engage in worship, to prepare their hearts to take this Passover meal, to remember God's enduring faithfulness. But people weren't doing that, and all these sellers were impeding people from doing that. In Psalm 51, 16, Tells us, for you will, do not, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Matthew 15, 8. Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God Oh, has always cared about the heart, right? He commanded, even though he commanded the people to be purified externally in preparation for this particular meal, but God has always cared about the heart. He wants to know where your heart is. Is your heart here? Is your heart attached to me? Is your heart ready to worship me? Because it's easy to externally look like you're ready to worship. You might be dressed and ready for the occasion, but your heart might be elsewhere. But this is how the people were purifying themselves or getting ready for the celebratory feast. So that's the crowds. But then we have another set of crowds in the passage, a much smaller crowd. And that is the, the chief priests, the religious teachers. So with the Passover being only six days away and people preparing themselves, what are they doing as people are preparing for the feast? Verse 9 of chapter 12, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So last week we saw that the religious teachers, that the Sanhedrin, right, the council that made up the religious teachers, the chief priests, the scribes, they were concerned of Jesus' growing ministry. And so they were trying to figure out what to do. And at the suggestion of Caiaphas, the high priest, they had decided that Jesus needed to die in order to spare the, 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 uh, the Israelite nation from the wrath of the Romans, and more importantly to them, to, to secure their privileged status and position among the people. So they decided that Jesus needed to die. And here, so then here are the ones that you would, be most, that you would most expect to be preparing themselves to take the celebratory feast. The one who would be amongst the people, preparing them as well to take this feast. Not only prepare them externally, but hopefully also preparing their hearts. Here they are intending to break the sixth commandment, not just once, but twice. Intending to murder not only Jesus, an innocent man, and also the Son of God, but also Lazarus, another innocent man. So instead, they're, they're muddying their hearts before the Passover meal. The growing ministry of Jesus enraged them. And their increasing jealousy and their increasing fear of losing their status among the people drove them to even risk the wrath of God being visited upon them by pursuing the death of two innocent men. And there were consequences for taking the Passover in an unworthy manner. Right? If you, were, if you touched the carcass and were considered unclean and you took the Passover meal anyway, well, then you were cast out of the camp, which was significant because to, be, because to be an Israelite means that you are the people of God, that you are favored of God, that you have the blessings of God. And to be cast out of the camp means that you're no longer in the favor of God, that you're no longer a person or the people of God. And so there's anyone who deserved to be cast out of the camp were the ones who were pursuing the death of two innocent men. External preparation means nothing if the heart is far from God. It's easy to be present physically in the moment, but also not be there at the same time. And so where are you this morning? Right, I know that you're here, I see you, but it doesn't mean that you're actually here. Your heart and your mind might be elsewhere. You might be distracted. You might be thinking about other things. Things might be trivial or maybe things that really are important to you, things to think about. But your heart might not be here. One diagnostic question to ask yourself is, why... Why am I here? Why are you here? Is it just simply to check off a list? Is it because if you didn't come, well, then your conscience would prick you for not coming? Is it because this is what you've always done growing up? You can't imagine not coming to church on a Sunday morning? Maybe. Maybe it's sin. Maybe personal sin has kind of distanced you from God. Maybe you come here this morning and you're just feeling, I, I don't, I should not be here. I don't, how can I be in the presence of God? God is holy and, I've, and I'm not. 
how can I be here? God wants your heart. God wants your presence, not just your physical presence, but he wants you to be with him. That matters to him. External appearance doesn't mean anything. External preparation doesn't mean anything if your heart is not there. And God wants your heart. Because he loves you and because he's worthy of all worship. And even though you might be here this morning not really feeling like you're here, it doesn't have to end that way. You can leave here differently than the way you came. If you will just be open, if you'll just be honest right from where you're at, and even just expect the Lord wants to speak to you this morning, that God wants to encourage your heart, that God wants you to look to him. And what are you doing to prepare beforehand to prepare your heart. And that could be something as simple as just saying a prayer before coming on your way here as you're driving. Right? If you're married, are you guys praying together on your way here? The heart matters to God. And one of the most pressing questions that we should come with on Sunday mornings is, is there a word from God? Because that question communicates expectancy, that you're expecting to hear from the Lord, that you're expecting to be changed in some way, shape, or form, even just a little bit. Our hearts must be ready to engage the Lord in worship because the object of our worship is worthy of our hearts. And we see this great example in the passage of a heart that is totally devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that example that we should look to and learn from and imitate. And so as the crowds are preparing for the Passover, there's a different preparation going on, a preparation for a funeral. So Jesus was at Bethany. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure knot and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Right, so as people, as the crowds are preparing themselves to take the Passover feast, as the chief priests are plotting on how to kill two innocent men, where is Jesus? And he's at Bethany in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, having this meal together. And it's in this small context that we see this incredible act of devotion. It says that Mary poured out this expensive ointment or this, this, this perfume or this oil that in, that in those days would have been considered about a, a year's salary. In our present context, it would have been worth at least $10,000. And $10,000 worth of ointment, of this oil poured out on the feet of Jesus. And one of the things in, the thing, probably the only thing that there's in common between the crowds and the chief priests and Mary is that they're all centering on the right person, right? The crowds are all 
preparing for the Passover meal, and they're wondering, where is Jesus? Where is he? Do you think he's going to come? And the chief priests are also focused on Jesus as well, because they know that people are believing in Jesus and intending to kill Lazarus, because on account of him, people are believing in him. So if we get rid of Lazarus, well, then maybe it will draw less attention to Jesus. But here is Mary. And I don't know if she had to perform these specific rituals. I'm sure she does as a, as, as a Hebrew, as a Jewish woman. And I don't know if she had done those preparations beforehand, but what I do know for certain is that her heart was certainly in the right place. She was with Jesus, and she was performing this act of devotion. And this is a similar act, right, that we are familiar with, right? Jesus kind of does something similar to his disciples. He washes his disciples' feet. But there's some striking dissimilarities between those two acts. And it is in the similarities that we see just how significant it is what, Je- what Mary does for Jesus. So she pours out this ointment, and, and it's a devotion that's considered foolish by Judas, right? He says, this, this, this could have been sold for a bunch of money and then given to the poor, right? And I love the, I love the Gospel of John because the, John always gives, us this, gives you this editorial comments. He gives you kind of this inside scoop and to let you know that, yes, the Lord cares about the heart. He tells you the heart of Judas. No, it's not that Judas cared about the poor. It's that he actually cared about himself, that he wanted more money than money back to help himself to it. So at least we know that Judas, certainly, his heart was not in the right place. Right? He was with Jesus. He witnessed his miracles. He learned from Jesus. He probably said the right things. But man, his heart was never in the right place. But here is Mary. And in this single act, we see at least two things. The first is that we see that this is an act of love. Right? She gives up what is costly, this, this oil, this perfume that's worth $10,000 in our context. She gives it up. She lays it at the feet of Jesus. And it shows that Jesus is much more valuable to her than this expensive ointment. And I just, I think I cannot help but compare it to the story of the rich man, the young rich man, you know that story, some of you who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, do this and do this and this. And he says, I've done all these things from my youth. And he says, he says to him, and he says he loved him. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And it tells us the rich man walked away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Jesus was not saying, earn your salvation. Jesus was not saying, give up everything you have, sell what you have, and then you can earn your salvation. He was not saying that, but he was saying, give up that which you love most. Give up that which is the object of your affections. Give up that which you value most. And then instead, become attached to me. And instead, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come and follow me. And in that example, the rich man says, what he's saying, what he's communicating is that he did not consider Jesus to be of more worth than his possessions. Isn't that sad? That these earthly possessions would not be, that they would be more worthy than Jesus Christ? Hence, Jesus says how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And 1 John warns us of the love of possessions. 
1 John 2, 15. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You don't have to be rich to be attached to earthly possessions. So I would caution you, beware of earthly possessions. That's fine if you have them, right? And we, to some degree, we need them. But don't become attached to them. Don't give your affections to them. Don't love them. Matthew 10, 38, Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Listen to that. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you are unwilling to give up that which you love most because you prize that more than Jesus, then Jesus says that you're not worthy of him, that you're not worthy of having a relationship with him, that you're not worthy of his mercy, that you're not worthy of his redemption, that you're not worthy of his forgiveness. If you are unwilling to take up your cross, die to yourself, take this posture of dying to yourself on a regular basis to come and follow Jesus. Mary's act communicates to us that Jesus is much more valuable than anything that we can possess here on this earth. So it's an act of love. And second, this was also an act of devotion. I mean, just read, Mary pours out this ointment on Jesus' feet. I mean, she's getting on her knees. She's getting to her face this close to the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet. Now, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is holy. Jesus is perfectly pure. But those feet were dirty. Right, I see, because there was no paved roads back then. And there was no closed, closed shoes. There was no sneakers back then. And so your feet got really dirty. And here is Mary taking the posture of a servant. Taking the posture of somebody who is the lowest of the low. And wiping and cleaning the feet of Jesus. Not only that, but she wipes it with her hair. And back then, in that culture, the hair of a woman was considered her crown and her glory. So here she is, cleaning the feet of Jesus with her glory. What this communicates is that she is wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, that she would be even willing to lay aside her reputation to lay aside her possessions, to give deference, to give honor to Jesus Christ. It's an incredible act of devotion. And what this communicates is also is that she's pointing to the majesty of Jesus Christ. Right? Even though Jesus, right, he took on our flesh, he became like one of us, he became a man while God at the same time even though that this, this humanity that he took on veiled his radiance and his glory like Moses had the radiant face when he was in the presence of God and came down and had to cover his face. That just as Jesus is clothed in flesh, veiling or hiding the radiance of his glory, yet he is still at the same time full of majesty. This is royalty. This is a king. In Luke 9.37, pay special attention to the end of the passage. 
Luke 9.37 says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished, listen to this, all were astonished at the majesty of God. So in other words, as people witnessed this incredible miracle, this demon being possessed, being ex- whatever, I can't even think of the word, but being cast out of this little boy, the people are witnessing the majesty of God, that this is royalty, that this is, this is not just an ordinary man. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, great passage. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter may not have seen it that way in the midst of it as he was walking with Jesus. But now after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension, now that he's looking back, right, he describes the ministry of Jesus, his powers, his working. He describes it as eyewitnessing of the majesty of Jesus. And so this wonderful, wonderful example from Mary shows us that the majesty of Jesus Christ, that this was an act of love, that this was an act of devotion. Do you desire to show that kind of affection and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? You may not feel like that this morning. But look to the example of Mary. Look at what it communicates to us. It tells us that Jesus is worthy that he is worthy of all the praise, that he is worthy of, our, of us getting down on our knees and saying, your majesty, because he deserves it, because he is the Lord of glory. And coming together like this is intended to be a means of grace, because even though your heart may be in a different place, it may, may be Sin has got you feeling distant from God that you don't want to be here. That this can be a means of grace to you, of God's calling you to draw near to him because he wants your heart to be changed, because it is good for you. And how do we grow in that, in our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we, how do we, grow in our desire to show the same kind of love and devotion that Mary displayed. By looking at this example, by looking at this passage and beholding the king in his beauty, that even as he is the God clothed in humanity, even though he didn't come to earth wearing these kingly robes and wearing this extravagant, extravagant uh, uh, clothing, And yet he was prepared. He was prepared for the occasion. He came clothed as a servant in order to give his life as a servant to the point of death on the cross for you and for me. 
We see the king in his beauty. Here in the passage, as this one woman worships at the feet of Jesus Christ, communicating to us that he is worthy of it. That's my desire for you, that you would grow in your devotion and your affections to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, again, so you, may not, right, you may be here and your heart may be somewhere else, but again, it doesn't have to end that way. Right, and I'm there with you. I have to ask my those, those questions too because it's so easy for me to be here just simply because I'm paid to. But God cares about the heart. God cares about your heart. He doesn't want you to be distracted. He doesn't want you to feel like you cannot draw near to him because of your sins. But he is the ever-present God, and he wants you to draw near to him. And you can draw near to him this morning. And there's one other thing that this, that this example communicates to us. Right, this was not just an act of love. This was not just an act of devotion. But Mary was also preparing Jesus for his burial. And because of the people as the crowds are getting ready to celebrate the Passover feast, here is Here's the true Passover, reclining at table with his friends and being worshipped like he ought to be. And, and Mary understood this. She knew that, Mary, that Jesus was going to his death. So Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? Just like John the Baptist proclaimed way back in the early chapters of the Gospel of John, when he sees Jesus from afar, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is that Passover Lamb. So that whoever believes in him might be marked by his blood so that the wrath of God passes over them. And Jesus was getting ready to lay down his life as a sacrifice for his people. So think about that. Remember the gospel. Meditate on the gospel and let that give you joy. Let that realign your heart in the right place. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today can be a means of grace for you as well. Because if Jesus Christ is not your Savior, if you have not taken up your cross to follow Jesus daily on a regular basis, then that wrath of God is still hanging over your head. But by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, by entrusting your life to him, by making Jesus Christ your greatest, the greatest object of your love and affection, then the judgment of God can pass over you as well. So trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ.